Hello and welcome to Open to Criticism. I'm Wendy Lloyd and this is my podcast about how we talk about movies, who gets to do it and why it matters. Now, I was prompted to talk to today's guest, Leila Latif, after reading an article she wrote following this year's BAFTAs. You may recall that although this year's nominations were notably inclusive, the winners were, yet again, exclusively white. You have black stories that still have to have a white person in the centre of them in order to succeed, I suppose, for certain audiences and for awards bodies. Coming up, Layla and I discuss the problem with awards campaigns and the ways in which top black directors are challenged and judged in ways that white filmmakers are not. But first, I was interested to learn more about Layla's career because she's a shining example of how social media is upsetting the traditional gatekeeping of criticism. Gatekeeping that has consistently managed to restrict access to critics who don't fit the white male norm. These days, Layla is regularly commissioned by The Guardian, Sight and Sound and BBC Radio 4, and she's contributing editor of Total Film. But as she explained, her career was launched with a vocal blog that she wrote about Oscars So White back in 2016. The Oscars were coming up soon and I, and I just had this idea of what is meaningful representation and the idea of a kind of Bechdel test for race came to my mind, what I kind of coined as being the Latif test. And I promise this was the first time this idea had come out. I think now there's been about a million of them. But I was, well, obviously Bechdel was the first one. But yeah, so I kind of my first job was very unlikely it was this very long feature in the guardian that was on the cover and on the cover of g2 and became their like best read thing because coincidentally we were talking about awards and representation in hollywood and films and then the oscars announced all white nominations that year so it kind of got boosted by that excellent so before that you were writing no before that i had never written anything um, before that, I was just somebody who had insomnia and watched a huge <laughs> amount of films and loved reading reviews. I would just, you know, I always every Tuesday going to buy time out and read those reviews because they, and you know, things that I would never watch, but I just loved kind of the art of criticism, I suppose. So kind of looking back, it, it makes sense. But no, I'd never had any ambition to write. Well, that's a great story. Um, well, let's then dive straight into your criticism because you recently wrote a piece following this year's BAFTAs about, again, the complete lack of people of colour, of winners. So how did you feel, especially you know now that you've just shared that story about writing your first piece off the back of Oscar So White, how did you feel this year, you know, several years on, watching this same old story unfold? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about it as well for BBC Culture a couple of years ago. Again, I mean, there's a part of me that's always happy for the commissions, but, you know, really would like to stop <laughs> having to write about this. It, it's complicated with the BAFTAs because I think there's generally a lack of imagination that happens from the BAFTA, not from the BAFTA institution itself, but from the voting body. We seem very content to just kind of follow what Hollywood is telling us to kind of value. And I think that does a disservice um not only to kind of a lot of marginalised communities, because like historically awards films are one type of thing. And if we don't have any imagination outside of that, um, that's a real shame. So 
A, I kind of think that the films that they generally award are pretty unimaginative, but also because we've got that conservative approach, it does underserve basically anyone from a marginalised community. Yeah, there is this, I mean, it's it's been a long-standing thing. I mean, I can think of the conversations over the years when I've been talking on various outlets about um, the BAFTAs and this, this kind of real kind of tussle they seem to always have about going, well, we want ourselves to be hugely international. We want it to have a lot of credibility around the world. But that does mean they compromise, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely feels that way to me. And there's, you know, there's so many kind of fixed perceptions that just seem so boring to me. And that I, I think that is generally something that so many awards bodies are making as a mistake, that they are so kind of desperate to be popular a lot of the time mm. that they actually alienate people that actually, like myself who actually get really into awards season and as a kid would stay up all night to watch the you know the Oscars yeah. at two in the morning <laughs> so yeah I think there's a series of different things um coming uh, you know there are problems here and I think if talking in some ways the sort of race of it all is the easiest conversation to have but I think it needs to be part of a kind of wider chat because there's a few problems here well, absolutely. And that's the thing, isn't it? It is very complicated. And uh, in in your piece, you raise the issue of how, and as you just mentioned before, you know, the same old genres of film take home a big awards. You said war films, period dramas and biopics. And obviously we saw a lot of that this year. That is a big part of it that needs shifting, doesn't it? As much of the demographic of those who vote, which BAFTA have, as we know, addressed. And I know that you've been quite vocal in saying, you know, yes, they have done and made some inroads there. But it's really these taken-for-granted biases, isn't it, about what kind of films are valued. That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, looking on, you know, obviously last year we didn't have this, necessarily have the same conversation, particularly with BAFTA, because we had Ariana DeBose winning uh, Best Supporting for West Side Story, Will Smith in King Richard. But to me, that they still seem like that sort of diversity is so is done so much with kind of Hollywood's permission in a weird way like they're very like West Side Story is the sort of film that wins an Oscar mm. and like the role of Anita previously won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar yeah. Will Smith is overdue his Oscar and he is in a biopic and sort of doing all of the big emotional beats and doing the scenes that we can kind of see from the Oscar clip so it's like even for me I'm just like when you do actually diversify you're doing it in the most tedious way imaginable <laughs> and it actually could be a great way to to, I don't know, have a bigger question about like, well, what is art and what's art's value and what is good acting mm. or good editing or good anything? I mean, like, look at Bohemian Rhapsody and how well that did. Yeah. It's just because it's the sort of thing that does well. Well, that's it. And and as I know that you've mentioned in subsequent chats you've had in the media about your BAFTA article, um, you know, this issue of the campaigns and the money spent on awards campaigns and therefore that a decision is made really back there up in the big offices about, you know, who's even going to get a look in in the first place. Yeah, I, I've, I've worked on awards campaigns before, kind of written, you know, for your consideration stuff. And it is so mercenary in a way that you kind of wouldn't expect it is literally this amount of money gets you this in response so I did Will Smith's one for um, King Richard I did Andrew Garfield's one as well uh, this year I did a tv show called uh, the boys season three's um, campaign and like there's so much politics 
politics behind it. Like when you take on roles with studios, if you're someone like a Will Smith, you can have in your contract that this is the amount that you're going to spend on my awards season. You can have things doing this show, The Boys. It's kind of looking at a larger selection of people that are going forward. And it is in their contracts that in their for your consideration things, they each get an equal amount of push. So the idea that it's a meritocracy is the one that I find most annoying is a kind of criticism of it. Like, well, maybe these were the best ones. And it's like, that's not how this works. <laughs> no, exactly. And that is the typical kind of response, isn't it? When people sort of say, oh, you know, you're complaining that specific people didn't come home with an award. Then the response tends to be, oh, so you're saying that Kate Blanchett didn't deserve it, that All Quiet on the Western Front didn't deserve it. And that's not the point, is it? No, it's not. And I think if we're going to hold that these things have any value, then we need to be honest about what they are awarding. Yeah, but I think it's very hard for people to unpack that. And when you say they're about, and, and what struck me then when you're talking about these these contractual things that exist for actors, which I didn't know those specifics myself, you know, my first response to that was going, well, then it just makes a mockery of the whole thing. But yet there's something about award ceremonies. As you said, there is a kind of like a romantic connection to them which means that even when we hear that there's an awful lot of money in play, people kind of still want to buy into the idea that it means something, don't they? Yeah, um, and I think in a weird way it does mean something, but what it means is not what people think it means. I mean, <laughs> I think it's amazing that, like, Nomadland, not that I thought that that was the best film of the year, I did quite like it, but, like, that... At that point, Hollywood was looking at itself in the pandemic and being like, you know, what we want to really value here is this Chinese-American director. This, you know, we're going to give it, you know, it's a woman who's kind of managed to break through with kind of quite a damning critique of capitalism and like, you know, in a very different sort of movie. And I was like, well, that's really interesting that that is kind of the feeling in the air over there. Yeah, you can have those kind of oddities sometimes and maybe maybe they serve to make us go, oh, things are changing. And then the rug's pulled out from under our feet again. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know where you think where critics sit in this equation then in terms of um, these awards not being diverse. Um, obviously, many critics in the UK are BAFTA members. But can critics help change what is valued in cinema in award, at award ceremony or are too many of us actually part of the problem? Oh, Christ, that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, like, I think a lot of critics are unclear of what value they actually, like, are in, in, in these sorts of things, because it's like, you can certainly champion stuff, and I think that that does make a big difference. And, I mean, coming out of somewhere like when I was at Venice um, at Festival, which is kind of the precursor to award season one, that's where they put a lot of the films that, are going to, that they're going to spend a lot of money on because it kind of works timing-wise, that uh, kind of September time. Mm. Um, but you can kind of see that, like, all of these reactions come out at once. And I think a big one that we saw quite a sharp turn happened for Hugh Jackman and The Sun this year where I, I don't think that the all of a sudden the papers of, and, you know, websites are all flooded with, like, this was incredibly disappointing. Florian Zeller's uh, The Father was brilliant and this is rubbish. And I think that kind of probably from the point of view of the studios and the awards campaigns, it's just like, oh, 
this is probably not going to be another Florian Zeller getting someone a best actor thing. So let's kind of put the brakes on that. And I did see a lot of interviews with Hugh Jackman that get cancelled and like right. that sort of thing. Like you could see them somewhat being like, oh, okay, this isn't good. Interesting. So they can definitely. So that's an interesting one where the power there, when it's kind of as a consensus, basically that something is not as good as would be expected by the director in question. But what about when it comes to being able to champion things that you know, as we're talking about in terms of awards, just aren't aren't valued. The kinds of films, the kind of performances, aren't as yet valued in the same way and a lot of that is perhaps a very unconscious thing on the part of critics oh yeah I mean certainly we've got I mean critics kind of exist in the same environment as everyone else and I remember seeing all of these reviews of Hillbilly Elegy come out um which and it seemed like most of them read this is terrible all of it is bad, Glenn Close will win an Oscar (laughs) or at least be nominated for it. So it's like we've got that same idea in our minds of like, oh, regardless of merit, this is the sort of thing that that will win BAFTAs and be nominated for stuff as well. And it's kind of hard to break your mind out of it because kind of the top films at any of the places I work at, like Total Film, Sight and Sound, or Little White Lies, like their top films are never like the Oscar contenders, really. I can't think of one since like Boyhood that topped um, the Sight and Sound one and, uh, and actually kind of managed to win anything. Mm. Like, and, and that's particularly egregious when it comes, I suppose, to the BAFTAs, where we've got, you know, the souvenir films that kind of topped all the critic poll after sun this year was the one that topped the mm. critics poll and and it, that's yeah that's not really reflected in in kind of awards body opinions so yeah i'd li- i'd like to think that we're a little bit more um creative with what we value yeah and i suppose we do have to look at you know in terms of the baftas i thought it was interesting that they did recognize Sandy Powell who of course made history as the first costume designer ever to win the BAFTA fellowship mm. and for me that it did stand out that well it's really indicative because the fact that it's the first ever time it's a costume designer it's because costume design and an area of filmmaking that is ostensibly female that has not been even on the radar of something like a fellowship I know obviously Sandy Powell is particularly outstanding in that field but you know what I mean it's like they are managing to see things in certain places yeah, they certainly are. I mean, like the history of Hollywood and filmmaking is so, like, is so much more gendered in terms of like what roles people have. It mm. is bizarre when you think of like the golden age of Hollywood and for so many years it was all male directors and female editors and yeah, you know, <laughs> and what's kind of endured from then. Like Barbara Loden was kind of dismissed whilst Elijah, her husband Elijah Kazan kind of could never put a foot wrong in that community <laughs> exactly. despite yeah. also that you know he did a lot of very bad things so yeah women have certainly really always I think or what was classified as women's work yeah has been I think dismissed as like not being rooted in like genuine talent 
it's more like craftsmanship, maybe like you're doing something decorative, mm. you're doing something helpful to serve, you know, a man's vision and his brilliance. Well, exactly. And as we heard on the podcast last week, when Helen O'Hara kicked us off and with her fascinating book, Women Versus Hollywood, and there was lots in there about how as soon as as soon as an area of cinema, including criticism, became interesting to men, when they sort of went, oh, that's interesting, or oh, that's artistic, or it's got some value it got taken over and women got sidelined again. So um, let's just hope that, you know, Sandy Powell, people following in her footsteps, the women aren't going to be pushed out now that uh, she's got a BAFTA for the fellowship. Um, Let's move on to your um, wider work, shall we? Because um, I loved looking through your website. You've got your piece entitled, uh, Is It Just Me or Is Spike Lee's Bamboozled a Masterpiece? Um, You wrote this, of course, a couple of years ago, but the film was released back in 2000. And I really wanted to talk to you about this because I I kind of think this is an interesting film to reflect on in terms of how it was reviewed at the time. Um, what particularly prompted you to write that piece when you did? I mean, I've always loved Bamboozled and I think that Spike Lee at the time was on something of an upswing. Um, there was kind of a feeling that he had been somewhat unfairly dismissed, that he'd peaked long before and he was now just making trash because the Black Kinsman has done so well. People kind of loved seeing him winning an Oscar for that. And, you know, The Five Bloods, I thought, was excellent as well. And there, there's an example of an actor that should have been nominated, actually. Delroy Lindo, and that was just astonishing. But um, yeah, so there was generally a feeling of reassessment, I think, of Spike Lee or reappreciating him. And for me, Bamboozled is one of his absolute finest. And I could never kind of fully understand the kind of emperor's new clothes, why it didn't feel like other people could see it. Um, It's so, I know it's a very overused phrase, it's so ahead of its time. I think if it came out now, it would be rightly regarded as a masterpiece. But it's uncomfortable, I guess. And what it's asking people to confront and people who work in film and TV and I suppose the media itself, what it's asking them to confront is really uncomfortable, Mm. but he's right. Well, it's interesting you say there that you think it would be received well, because one of the reasons that, um, you know, the article kind of resonated with me and I wanted to talk to you about it was because I have had in the course of my kind of research on all this stuff, I've had conversations with critics, white critics, who've argued that, oh, even the black community think the film is angry. And they've kind of sort of dismissed it as, you know, spikely being too angry. And I found interviews, I did a lot of clicking around online and I found interviews from back in 2000 from both white and black critics and commentators who did indeed call it angry. Yet I watched it again the other night um, and I didn't feel in 2023 that it comes across as angry. So I'm, I'm interested in the fact that there are still critics now, as I said, the conversations I've had recently, where people are hanging on to this idea that this film is something which I agree with you in the light of how we're thinking and talking about things now, surely wouldn't be viewed in that light. I mean, I would certainly hope so. Um, It does kind of slightly remind me of that story of like Helen Reddy, that when she performed I Am Woman for kind of studio executives, they kind of came back to her with just like, this is furious. This is offensive. You have like done this song that is so, so angry. And like, you listen to that song and it's it's not angry. But yeah, it's, uh, it's very, very maddening when kind of people 
willfully misinterpret, I think, what is very like salient points being made to like something like bamboozled. Yeah, bamboozled, I think, is underappreciated because there was just an idea of the sort of film that it was and people were engaging with that rather than the film it actually is. And I think that's always the case when people come with a a little bit of bad faith, but also like crazy biases Mm. um, that they have accumulated over, over the years. And obviously it's a lot more diverse now. There's a lot more women and queer people and people of colour in this industry. But I guess it's that question of like, what is meaningful representation? And when we talk about black critics that saw this film and saw it's angry, is there an element of like, well, I got to be one of the good ones. I've got to go along with like, what is the Mm. popular opinion? Otherwise, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable. I mean, maybe that's what they sincerely believed. I don't understand it because having seen Bamboozled many times. But yeah, and I think that also kind of speaks to, you see it in Hollywood, you see what is the type of black person who become you know who succeeds mm. it's it's your will smith it's your kind of well perhaps until the slap kind of slightly non-threatening doesn't mm. swear a lot goes along with kind of quite a um a steadfast um quite a conservative thing doesn't over sexualize himself you know all of those things it, People are quite boxed in, I think, in every area of this role, be it writing or performing or filmmakers, like what are the sorts of black films that we get to make? And I think, yeah. So I think when we talk about representation and it's, you've got to talk about, is it meaningful? Are they doing anything new? Mm. Are they, you know, allowed to kind of be steadfastly from their or their community's uh, perspective? Because, you know, if not... Well, I suppose we should talk about, you know, just mention to anybody who's listening who isn't, is, is, is unfamiliar with the film. You know, the, the, the film is about, um, you know, basically a, a, a black TV exec um, coming up with a TV show uh, where performers, black performers, perform in blackface. So it's a modern day minstrel show, he calls it. And I suppose I'm wondering whether or not part of the issue for critics and audiences alike was because this kind of conversation wasn't happening at the time it was they didn't know what to do with that subject matter to be on the receiving end of it and i'm not saying that as being an apologist for the responses because i myself you know am am fascinated and and can't believe the responses at the time certainly looking back at them and having watched the film the other night but do you know what i mean is is that what it was was it just you know Spike Lee was kind of put it in our face and we 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 didn't know what to do with it as white people. I mean, yeah, I, perhaps. But, um, I always like think of the Roger Ebert thing of like that films are supposed to be machines for empathy. So, I mean, if you're kind of not going to a film like that and actually empathising with what is going on with these characters, the pra- you know, the pressures that they have, why they create a black a minstrel show and, you know, how kind of power corrupts them in, in, in various ways. I mean, if you're not, it's all there. So it's like if you're mm. not engaging with it and you don't have empathy and, and understand what the film is, I just feel like you're watching films wrong. <laughs> And maybe that's easier for me because, you know, being a black woman, I'm very used to kind of going and seeing films about, you know, people that have, you know, don't look like me or if I haven't, you know, I grew up in cartoon and stuff like that. It's just my base level that I come into things with like, oh, I don't understand this world, but this is going to succeed on fail and based on how much I empathize with 
every character in it so yeah, yeah even if they don't look like me yes and and that's obviously that's that's been a heavily researched and 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 considered um aspect of film theory hasn't it the fact that you know for women for people of color for basically anybody who's not a white bloke if you went going into the cinema if you didn't find a way to empathize and be in another person's shoes you wouldn't get very much out of cinema um so we are more practiced at it, uh, it but there's there's different things in play obviously whether you're female whether you're a person of color all these different things come into play but I think, I, I mean, the other thing that struck me watching it and off the, again on the back of what I was just saying there is that I kind of, it, I found myself thinking, you know, was the issue at the time and, and an ongoing issue with Spike Lee for white people is that there's the tendency for um, them slash us, I still have to talk for myself in this <laughs> in this group, mm-hmm. to to feel like we're being told off by Spike Lee and that it's all about us. And I watched the film and I was thinking... I think that can be a white person response. But the reality of Bamboozled, and I found when I was watching it, was like, yes, it's about the abuse via blackface and how it relates to slavery, etc., and how the ramifications leak into the modern day. But it presents a really nuanced um, story about the black experience and how different that is and that it's not monolithic and... I was watching it fascinated by how I didn't know how I was supposed to feel about the main character, Delacroix. So I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, you said that, you know, people aren't watching it in the right way. And I think I think there's something in that. I think there's an inability sometimes because white people are used to understanding the, and how to empathise with the white experience. Anything different going on, they come at it as if they're being attacked or making judgments. Oh, 100%. I mean, this is just links uh, so beautifully to <laughs> one of my favourite things, where it is you have black stories that still have to have a white person in the centre of them in order to succeed, I suppose, for certain audiences and for awards bodies. And I would present to you the evidence of do the right thing, not getting any love from any of these awards bodies in the year that Driving Miss Daisy won. Yeah. Because these are both films about racism, but one of them is about it through the experience of a white person. And that has not gone away because why the hell else would Green Book, which was crap, have done so well? Yeah. You know, yes, you, you, you sort of said that the criticism about Bamboozled has aged badly. I wonder, do critics need to kind of reflect a bit more on what they have written and how others have written and keep things in check a bit more? Are we doing that enough? Um, I think we're certainly trying to do it. Um, I guess it's a bit like the BAFTAs trying to diversify, like there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of reorder on the surface but to actually confront this at like at a fundamental level is is a lot tougher when it came to bamboozled and when it came to a film called ganja and hess the sort of level of disrespect is what makes me furiously angry reading reading those reviews back um the fact that we've got reviews being published in national newspapers that literally just say more trash from Spike Lee I mean we don't talk about white male filmmakers in that way we don't 
Um, yeah, and when it came to Ganja and Hess, there is this incredible letter that was published by Bill Gunn after the film did really well in Cannes and it came to America and every all of the white critical establishment hated it. And he wrote a letter in the New York Times about that experience. And he there's a fabulous line where he just says, the level of disrespect could not have taken 110 minutes. It must have taken around 250 years. I mean, it, it's it, and I think about that letter all the time. And it, it's not just, you know, black filmmakers. I think we talk about female filmmakers in that way. I think we undervalue, you know, so many of them. The dismissive terms of like, not chick flicks. Yeah, chick flicks. Is that what they used yeah. to call them? Like, I grew yeah. up with people calling things like when Harry met Sally, chick flicks. And, you know, why is it when Woody Allen would make romantic comedies, those were art? Annie Hall was considered one of the greatest films of all times. And like, but we could so dismiss the same genre if we saw it as being overly feminine. Mm. So, yeah, I I think there is a basic level of disrespect um, that we really need to check ourselves as critics. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I think one way to kind of, as I found the other day, clicking around and just looking at interviews and reviews and things um, at the time of release of some of these things um, to kind of reflect upon how we might see it differently now is is quite an enlightening thing to do. I did. I also watched this interview with Spike Lee and um, Charlie Rose. Oh, yeah. And um, the interview is quite something because Spike Lee is so utterly gracious throughout um and I know it turns out throughout by the end of the interview that they go to the Knicks games together and all this kind of stuff so they obviously know each other but you know Charlie Rose has no qualms about coming at him with things like you brought this film out bamboozled but really you know what would you say to people that that whole classic start of a question what would you say to people who say if you want to send a message go to Western Union you should just be entertaining us good lord I mean, it's quite astounding when you when you watch that back. And as I said, Spike Lee is hugely gracious about it. Mm. And I would love to know how he would think about <laughs> about all that now, because it's almost like the film needs a reissue, really, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. No, I would love to be able to see it actually on the big screen, which I never got the opportunity to do. But I mean, you'd, I don't think you even need to go as far back as Bamboozled, really. I was listening to... Um, Steve McQueen's Desert Island Discs, which I think was about two years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and towards the end, they kind of asked him, and I thought it was disgusting. Like, oh, you've kind of got a reputation for being very difficult, but I've actually found you to be extremely pleasant. Why do you think that is? <laughs> and he <laughs> just responds with, because I'm a black man and I have to not think about that too much, the way I am viewed, because otherwise I would probably end up in prison like a lot of black people are. And it's this thing of like, we yeah. st- we ask people the most, it's, I, I, I mean, I don't want to make it too much about respect because that seems like quite a kind of lame American cheesy term, but like, I can't imagine white men being asked that same type of question. And even something recently, like to, in terms of women, like what happened with Olivia Wilde and Don't Worry Darling, which I enjoyed as a kind of gossipy way. But like we think of the behavior of like David O. Russell on his sets quite recently or, you know, Brian Singer famously being, you know, the things that he's done on mm. his sets. And we just we don't have the kind of hunger to turn them down culturally the way that we were so thrilled to kind of come for 
Olivia Wilde. Well, yes, it's almost like because we've got quite a few um, female filmmakers coming through, there's a lot of talk about how they are very keen to make sure that they bring um, a more gentle and respectful set um, and into the kind of normality and that things are done differently. It's true, isn't it, that we have to be very careful that then doesn't turn into, oh, well, that's the only way women can run a set because they should be able to run a set the way they want to, just like men can. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't have to have our kind of people from marginalised communities be saints in the way that we've never expected anybody else to be. And, like, you know, film sets are famously difficult things, but, you know, nobody's looking back on... uh, apocalypse now and uh, and you know critic over criticizing francis ford coppola though I, I must say i do find it shocking when you look back at that and you realize that Lawrence fishman i think is 15 yeah. on the set of that <laughs> set where like everybody's having heart attacks from cocaine <laughs> and there's like you know war starting in the philippines but yeah it's i guess it's the thing it's the vision of the troubled genius and the troubled genius must be served in all these ways and the troubled genius is a white man yeah and that's the thing, isn't it? Because I guess, yeah, it, it is important to say no one wants to return to um, times when it was considered OK for more outlandish and indeed abusive things to happen on set. But um, it's very important that what the idea doesn't shift in ways that still enables that stereotype to be maintained and the prejudice that comes off the back of it to be maintained as well. So so let's um, round it up by just kind of um, just from your perspective. Are you optimistic that criticism is getting to a better place? Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how optimistic I feel. I think these things take an incredibly long time and there's probably problems with what I'm ambitious for that will kind of unveil themselves in like 30 years time. And I'll, I'll, I'll realize that a lot of stuff that I thought was fine now is like really not okay. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I worry, I worry about, um, the kind of role that like social media and TikTok and all of that stuff is doing to criticism. Mm. I worry that like everything's actually also getting very puritanical where it comes down to like depictions of sex and sexuality on screen. Often there's this kind of, you know, complicated characters are um, also like not appreciated. There's this idea that, you know, if we... The only meaningful representation is if we see, you know, people of colour as heroes. And, like, I, I don't want that either. Mm. So, um, yeah. I, I had a chat with Cynthia Revo the other day. And she was telling me that all she wants to do is play a villain. But all she gets is heroes. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. But, like, actually, maybe what we should be aiming for is not perfect representation, but, like, messy representation. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would like... I'm cautiously optimistic, I suppose, but I I also kind of can see a few potential dystopias within (laughs) criticism forming. Yes. And for you yourself, do you feel like you're getting to do enough wider criticism or do you feel, I mean, you said at the beginning, obviously, you know, you're happy to kind of speak out about issues of diversity. Um, But I wonder whether you feel sometimes that there's still people looking to you for that rather than wider criticism. 
I've spoken about that with uh, friends before, where we kind of, we call it Trojan horsing ourselves into places where you uh, be like, <laughs> would you need someone for some black coverage? And then you'll get in and then you're just like, I'm interested in horror and documentaries and like all of this stuff. And then you can slowly actually um, expand um, throughout. So I, I've gotten to that place. I've gotten, I've got really great editors that know the sort of stuff that I'm the sort of value I bring to different things and it's it's not necessarily about skin colour. Uh, but at the same time, they do know if they have time with a Barry Jenkins, it's probably going to be a more interesting conversation if I'm talking to them than if it was uh, one of my, my very talented, but one of my, one of my white colleagues. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've seen a huge amount of change, I have to say, just in the short time that I've been doing it. I mean, bring it back to that Guardian article that I first wrote, the maybe like three days later, they published a follow-up article written by a white film critic who said that, um, believe it was titled "Art Suffers When We Demand It Reflects Real Life," and the idea was that actually calls for diversity were going to kill creativity. And I at least can always feel that I don't think that would happen now. <laughs> Layla Latif, positioning the progress we're making alongside the challenges very much still to be addressed. And you can hear more from Layla, whose cinematic interests include horror, politically galvanising art and film, and the work of marginalised groups, on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast, which she hosts. And she's also active on Twitter. That's it for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please follow or subscribe to the podcast and give us a quick rating, why don't you, while you're at it. Join me next time when critic Anna Smith will be sharing her wisdom from four years of hosting her excellent Girls on Film podcast. When thoughtful women come together and talk about film, sometimes it goes in a feminist direction. Sometimes it's just great reviewing that happens to come possibly from a slightly different perspective. Open to Criticism is written, produced and hosted by me, Wendy Lloyd, with original music by Hamish Clark. Absolute pleasure. This was really interesting. I, lo- I love talking about this stuff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>